0: Hello, and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by YYZ
1: Translations. Your host
0: is Sultan Ghaznavi with today's episode.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to the Translation Company Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Sultan Gaznawi, and today I'm pleased to be discussing an issue that is very important and underrated. I'm talking about cybersecurity in the context of localization. The world has become a much dangerous place when it comes to cybersecurity, yet our industry lags behind in so many ways. We will discuss everything from vulnerabilities related to content transfer, encryption, storage, and other areas that impact this important part of our business. It is important because our clients trust us, the language translation companies, with their most important and sensitive information and protecting that is imperative. With me today, I have Andre Hemker and Mike Mellows, both of them based in Germany. Andre is the executive director and chief technology officer at WordCraft, which is a German language services company. Before that, he was the managing director at Synchronics, a language translation company that's also based in Leipzig, Germany. He is a very technical and technology savvy man. Mike Mellows is the head of translation at WordCraft. He has extensive experience in the field of translation and linguistics. His interest in cybersecurity stemmed from his experience dealing with clients and day-to-day practices of handling sensitive material. I hope to get their perspective on the challenges we are facing or going to face in the near future related to data security within the localization and translation industry. Gentlemen, welcome to the Translation Company podcast. Let me jump right on to my first question. Tell me, how did you find yourself in the language translation industry?
2: Oh, okay. Well, where do I start? Well, you know, I did teacher training when I was... You know, when I was young, and then I noticed that I—that's what—that wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, but you know, I trained to be—you know—studying to become an English teacher. You know, in order to find out what I wanted to do, I—I I went to the UK to work on a construction site, and then I found myself translating on that construction site all the time because it was a German construction company building it in England and, and all that. So that was basically my first contact. So I came back and then decided to study translation and at the same time I already formed my first company and uh, I did a lot of audio um, back in the day so I, I you know my company was basically audio engineering I did lots of audio post-production and at some point I thought you know it might you know nobody's combining the two so uh, yeah that's that's where, where I started and that's how I got in contact with a lot of technology I was a computer nerd before yeah, and that's uh, where I'm today, uh, 10 years down the line.
1: Well, thanks for sharing that background. Uh, very interesting uh, how you came to the language industry and and looks like right now uh, you're quite active there. What about you, Mike? Uh, what got you into the language industry?
0: Um, so originally I studied specialized translation for Arabic in Cairo, and we also had interpreting courses there. And uh, the interesting part was that uh, we also were working with very old equipment, um, which we used cassettes to record ourselves, like our interpreting classes. And we had to do everything very, very old school. So, um, up to a point where we even translated by hand. So this was a really eye opening experience because like, um, I knew that there was technology out there. So after my, my stay abroad, I started to look into different language technologies and also to um, gain some practical experience. And in just in my hometown, I was looking for someone who's offering that like technical localization, also like audiovisual translation and all the processes. And this is where. Um I got to Andre, um, who was uh, building a company at the time and uh, needed a project manager. So I just started at his company with all the te- learned the technical um, yeah all, all the technical treats that you need to know in order to be successful. and this is how
1: I slided into the whole localization industry. Okay, but quite interesting again. so well, I didn't know that you you went to Cairo for uh, studying Arabic, uh, pretty interesting actually. So, Uh, Let me ask both of you, what is your general view of the language services uh, company or LSE um, landscape today? What top challenges are we facing that need to be addressed uh, before we dive deeper into today's subject matter of data security?
2: Um, Well, I I guess that depends on... uh... What what geographical location you're in? I think the state of the LSB landscape is uh, totally different between Asia, U, uh, Europe, and, and, and North America. Um, you know, whilst in North America you have uh, you know a couple of big companies that uh, have a large market share. Um, here in Europe, it's it's different, where you know basically the vast majority of the market share is uh, shared between uh, a lot of small and mid-sized companies. Then you have emerging market markets like uh, like Asia. Um, so I can speak for Europe. Um, it is in Europe. It's still it's still often um, embarrassing how um, how low tech uh, the industry still um, still acts um, in many areas. So I guess for Europe, you know, catching up with technology is like the biggest challenge in the the US has has other challenges i guess where sometimes too much high tech and too much you know you know very early adoption and then technology isn't ready but you know you know if i speak for europe i guess in europe that's the we have have to play some catch up here so
1: let me hear your perspective on that mike Uh, what what do you think uh, the lsp landscape is i mean andre just mentioned that europe and north america have uh, significantly different um, different ways of doing things especially when it comes to technology
0: yes um, I can I can confirm that from my experience is especially as I was working in the German market as a, a sales or business development manager um, that the adoption of new technologies is all, always something they're really hesitant about so in, a, in terms of like adoption of new technologies um, they tend to be very conservative and uh, stick to what they know and whenever there are new industry trends that are emerging is that there are a lot of buzzwords around like for instance cloud technology the first thing we always asked was like is this secure, Um, are there any security issues and uh, those are the issues that kind of make them hesitant to adopt a certain technology and um, I can speak for the the DACH region for this is actually true and um, other countries might have a little bit, might be a little bit more advanced like if if I talk about the Region, then of course Switzerland is um, having a whole different approach. Like they, they seem to be a little bit more open to technology, and they're also assessing new technologies on a widely larger sta- scale. So um, we see some developments into like being less conservative, but all in
1: all, like we still have to fight old structures. I think. Thank you for for that perspective so uh as, as as we were talking right now about Europe uh, and technology moving or technologies adoption moving at a slower rate in other parts of the world what is actually uh, the root cause of that uh, is it a traditional or conservative LSP model or is it because the technologies are not made in Europe I mean recently a lot of uh, localization technologies has originated in Europe especially from Germany and some parts of Eastern Europe what is stopping that adoption or slowing it down in Europe compared to north america
2: well that's a good that's a good one well, yeah it's it's um, you know germany especially is, is a very you know it's a very conservative market where especially translation is a lot based on trust and old relationships and um, also you know you should think you know from our cars and stuff you should think you know that, that we're really amazed about you know new technologies and new ways of working but um as an example you know when we do a cms system localization it is um most company websites are still manually translated that i came across and uh, it is um, you know 10 years ago i would have thought you know that you uh, you know you present those new technologies and you show new ways of working and you know you were just kicking open doors but that's not the case and uh, even even today so it's like we still have a lot of convincing to do and uh, i guess that is that's is, we just have to communicate better and 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 just convince people better. I mean, when it comes to uh, cloud technologies and stuff, then we're also fighting against a very bad press that, of course, has to badmouth cloud technologies, you know, 24/7, especially when they come out of the out of the US. I don't know, due to political reasons or whatever that is. The problem is that we don't have anything comparable. So for European companies, we either. You know when when we run software as a service then you know we don't have a lot of, kind of european uh, providers to choose from so yeah i guess you know it's like it's a it's a mix between distrust and and conservatism and uh yeah that's i guess i can't describe it any better and i'm german myself so i'm still sometimes puzzled about the whole thing
1: so from what i'm hearing there is a uh uh, again, a trust issue, but then there is also um, uh, some sort of uh, notion uh, or belief that the traditional model has worked and uh, the new technology may or may not work because it's it's untested uh, for that specific entity. But technology can be a blessing, meaning it can make it work easy, which is the purpose of it, or it can be a potential curse. I mean, we hear about all kinds of issues related to cybersecurity and, and technology failing so miserably. Is that what is scaring LSCs in general from adopting new technologies, in your opinion? Um, I think it's not really the
0: LSCs who are um, hesitant, but it's also more on the client side because translation, as you know, is always one of the workflow steps that is considered to be the last step in the process, um, instead of being adopted like from the early, very early stages of a whole project. So we have very very structures that have worked. In, in the client's view, view for for several years, ten years, twenty years. So having a little bit different approach, like with a whole SAS technology, also also the, inter- the internationalization approaches and all of that, is of course something that requires to um, change your old uh, processes in that way. And of course, why would you do that if it still works? Especially for a process that's kind of last step in the line, right? And I think there's just um, in, in the whole industry we have a lot of uh, I don't know um, workshops about that topic as well, like last lockwell was um there was a session about justifying your existence as a head of localization the company right like the whole company uh, the whole industry is constantly fighting to uh, get a higher uh, prestige uh, in, in the industry as well and i think uh, especially also here in germany is that this whole rethinking of the translation process is still something that needs to be done and this is one major point and after the rethinking we also have to think about like what technologies will enable the workflow that we just came up with and uh, this is very like in these technical times where we have. A a lot of content management system, different apps and software where we have all our uh, tech saved in basically. So that's something that uh, also maybe some people don't really understand. And this is where like professionals come in handy that not only how to implement those workflows, but also make them visible and also
1: explain them very well to their relevant decision makers. Let me, let me talk about data security, which is the subject of our conversation today. So we deal with Data as language service providers on a daily basis, and and in everything that we do, we process that data into one or more languages. Uh, that's the purpose of, of our existing, basically, to our existence, to to localize data. So many people uh, through uh, the food chain gets to touch that data, whether it's uh, well, inside our companies or through our subcontractors and so forth. Explain to me the major challenges and risks that LSCs face with regards to data security today. Well, yeah, I guess uh, you know. Let me let me start with a cheeky look
2: into how the, trans, the small uh, LSP translation landscape actually works, at least in this country, and I'm sure you know this this translates to other country countries as well. So you know, we have lots of small LSPs. You know, like you know maybe up to 10 people or often less. And it's basically some some person that sits behind a computer and she gets an email from a client and the client sends sends a file, you know, via email, unencrypted, you know. And uh, since translation is expensive, we mostly get the most, most important information to translate. Nobody spends a lot of money translating unimportant information. So it arrives at this person's. Computer unencrypted and then that person send you know she has a database of translators and the translators get get the same email they say you know they send off the the, the document uh to different translators in order, order to get quotes so you know so the, you know the, the client sends the important piece of information and then in, within minutes it has already spread to 12 different translators or other LSPs, they ask other LSPs to give a quote and then they do the same thing and and suddenly you have hundred copies of your of your document out in the wild uh on, on on not very secure systems sent unencrypted via email. It happens on a constant basis that we get unsolicited emails from other LSPs to ask us for a quote. And uh, just the other day I had a had a file from a large beauty company, um, where they discuss their next year strategy. And it said in the, you know, in, in big letters it said, uh, confidential. And I just get this file, I'm not solicited in my inbox. And uh, that is how they work today. And the clients are not aware of them. Absolutely not. They have a very often a very naive idea of how this industry works and you know, oh there's lady that I know and she, you know she treats my data very well and they have people that do that and you know or, or, I guess in how they do it in-house I don't know really but it always works so um, this is pretty much how a large chunk of the industry works if people disagree then they're not they're just not honest so and the funny part comes when when, uh, when you try to do things to and say, okay, we have a you know we have a system, software as a service, and it's fully encrypted, end-to-end encrypted. So you upload your documents in an encrypted uh, connection, and we save it on on encrypted servers, and all and all the various systems are actually even in the data center communicate in an encrypted fashion, and then you you can download your results you now over in an. Uh, Again, over an encrypted connection, but then the, the question pops up like, Oh, where's the data? Where's the data? And it's like, you know, it is absolutely fine for them to send out their data via email and even LSPs. What do they, you know, classical LSPs? What do they do? Then they prepare their packages. We all know the packages that I need, you know, it doesn't matter what from what system, system they come, which are basically. Which are basically zip files containing the entire file, the entire terminology database, and very, very often the entire translation memory. So you're not only sending out what is translated today, you, you are sending out in an unencrypted fashion what was translated so far. You're basically transferring the entire history. We added the other day that, you know, a um, translation memory happened to be too big, so um, the other company sent it via transfer. You know, and um, but whenever you say that you know you have a proper system in place, then you know the question comes up: Where is the data? Uh, and it's so funny that you know just when we start using systems that are objectively secure or A million times more secure than what what we were doing in the past. And suddenly the question comes up, where is the data? Where nobody asked when they sent an email, where is my data? Nobody knows where the email server or what path the the IP packages took when, you know, um, and I I think this is something that we really need to talk about now, where we suddenly are now hesitant to adopt systems that are Objectively more secure than what we what we did in the past, and um, suddenly we are we're, we're uh, you know we have secure fears of a lack of security uh, without properly understanding um, how how inherently insecure uh, the the our methods were or the the methods that we uh, are still using. So I think to me this is the biggest challenge to actually make people understand why a data center run by Microsoft is more secure than your local email server. You know, then, you know, people come up with, yeah, but the NSA can like look into your data. It's like, yeah, guess what? You think the NSA can't hack your your email server? You know? So I, I guess we have a lot of, planning to do in that regard. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck in the, in the dark end.
1: I uh, absolutely agree with you there, Andre. And uh, so we you touched upon several issues uh, when it comes to data security at a language translation company. Is there a difference between how a small LSE handles data security, given the uh, fewer number of resources that they have, some of them don't even have an IT department, versus a large one that has put some thought into securing the data. But then again, as you say, um, they also have their shortfalls. Uh, I would like to hear from you.
2: Mike, can I do a quick one on this? And then you chip in. Um, You go ahead. The the, the answer is no. There is no difference between the big ones and the small ones because the small ones nowadays can can take massive advantage uh, of the investments that the large LSPs have helped to make. So you can you can go up right now, within minutes, sign up for one of the many software as a service uh, translation management systems that are used by small LSPs, by large LSPs, and they all offer the same security. They run on the same systems, they run with the same encryption, they, large companies use their IT departments to do penetration tests on these systems before they get adopted. So the small NSP who buys a smaller packet has the same security benefits or has the security benefits that were actually paid for by larger providers. So to me, uh, you know, having no ID card today is not an argument whatsoever because the only thing you need is a computer, a web
1: browser, and uh, a secure system, you know, if of course... If you
2: continue running your old client server approach, then yeah, you better have an IT department to keep it halfway secure. Which you can't, because at some point, your data has to be your premises at the latest when you send it to a translator. Or the, if the translator downloads from your secure server, then, well, it has the translator has to download the data at some point. Then run the, uh, run, you know, well, process the data on his computer and your data is as secure as the translator's computer. And I guess we, we all know the answer to, <laughs> to that question of how secure the data is there.
1: So, we know that.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. So yeah, sorry, Mike. I just wanted to.
1: No, it's all
0: right. Uh, I, I guess it's the, the perfect, uh, introduction to what was I, what I was going to say basically that uh, in in Europe we had used huge, discu- huge discussions in the last couple of years about um, the adoption of the general data protection regulation so in there like um, it is directly um, prescripted how to handle personal data and if we as translators we are in contact with personal data all the time you know we are um, Swan translators are uh, are translating birth certificate licenses um, also legal translators have contracts with all the different names of the representatives in them or we have medical data for different patients um that we are translating so we're we're getting in contact with a lot of personal data and right now of course we want to follow that approach of the translation like having a translation memory that supports us in a translation process but of course all this personal data will always be in the translation uh, translation memories um and those translation memories as andre said uh, were also sent to different countries because if I need a legal translation into Brazilian Portuguese, I won't find the best uh, pot- uh, Brazilian Portuguese translator in the world in my neighborhood or maybe not even in, in in whole of Europe. You want to have your services from the source, like from people who are living in Brazil, like getting up to date with, with all the legal requirements and so on and so forth, you know. And uh, in that moment, like if you go with a client server approach, you're just sending the data out to a third country outside the European Union. And uh, even now, uh, just yesterday, there was a court ruling by a European institution that even the U.S. Yeah. EU privacy shield is not, I don't know, constitutional or, or not adequate anymore. And if we hear something like that, then, of course, like we have the question, okay, is there a way at all how we can stick to the general data protection regulation? And I think for the whole industry and I think even for the translation services of those European institutions themselves, the answer is a clear no.
2: Here's the funny part. In the European uh, GDPR document, you're basically required, so if your client calls you up and says, yeah, you know, I want you to delete my private data, you go like, oh, yeah, okay, you know, I'm obliged to do that, and you have to send them a nice letter, you know, um, basically acknowledging that you did that, and, you, you know, Present your process and blah, blah, blah. You know, I have to do all that kind of stuff. So could anyone explain to me how on earth you would do that if you use one of the classic client server systems, like the, the most popular CAT systems in, in the world, for instance, how would you get, how would you delete the client data in a translation memory that you sent away to a translator two years ago? I, I, I would like to have some Jeopardy music
1: now. Oh, well, uh, we don't have the Jeopardy music, but I think from my perspective, there is no answer. I mean, you can ask the translator to remove it. But first of all, whether the translator still works for you or not, that's one. Secondly, whether they do it or not, that's another thing because you don't have control over them. Uh, They're an outside entity and it can only go so far. So on on that note, with GDPR, it it being a regulation at the end of the day, there is also regulations such as the HIPAA in the U.S. for uh, health information. Um, is regulation having any effect on how data security is handled in our industry? I mean, our industry is quite silent on data security altogether.
2: I don't know. Is it? Does it, it, it doesn't have? Uh, Does it have any effects in, in in North America? I don't. It doesn't have any. It, here? You know, it's like everybody acknowledges it. It's, oh yeah, we have to do it, and then pretty much ducks away. And you know, because they don't know how to do things differently, they just. Yeah, duck away, don't say anything, and hope you know the storm will pass. That's pretty much the approach here. I don't know. Did anything change in uh, North America? I mean, I mean, in your day today, from from the way your clients work, the way your translators work, or uh, I,
1: I, I don't think so. No, we uh, things still operate with H HIPAA. Things have changed a little bit. There's more um, scrutiny. There's more agreements to be signed. And and we've started noticing that some files are coming in with personal information being encrypted a certain way. Uh, But that's only very few and in between, uh, not many of them, which is interesting. Now, how do you handle security of your data uh, as we were just talking about being enforced at your contractor or freelancer? is having an NDA signed with them just enough, which is what most LSEs rely on. Um, so the just, way,
0: um, like, you know. yeah. so so um, I'm managing the the projects at WordCraft here. So um, basically what we have, we have a centralized system, right? Like so the client of, clients are uploading their documents to our system. and from there, like uh, our suppliers will just um, work in the same system um, as the project manager and the client. So they don't use their own translation memories, but ours that they can access via a web browser. So they do never have the, the data physically on their computer. So um, we will never give the personal information out. The next thing is we also have like an acceptance in that way that like a, a setup for for contracts. So whenever a translator is accepting a job, that translator needs to accept our general terms and conditions and a non-disclosure agreement, like for every job individually. We will make sure that they get, yeah, that they adhere to the standards. And of course, as it's not really possible for them to get any data unless, like, they copy and paste the individual segments out of uh, out of the translation memory, which would be a very clear breach of their uh, obligations. We feel pretty confident that we can limit the spread of the uh, of the data our clients yeah, provide to us.
2: Yeah, and I mean, of course, even if I now were working. Of course, you know the 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 text strings. Of course, flow into the translator's web browser. You know, we he has to work somehow. You know, or um, anyway, we, we try a little things. For instance, we can block the translator from downloading the file. And when we create when we create a preview, we make sure that it's actually a rasterized image rather than, than uh, an actual file. But at the end of the day, you can only make it harder to, you know, to basically just, you know, use and copy the data. But at the end of the day, of course you have to, you know, they, they have to do their work somehow. But the, the good thing is that we still, you know, and, and still we keep control of uh, the database, the translation memories. I think this is the biggest thing because you know, with a package approach, you can lose all the data at once, and it's very easy to do. And at least, so I, you know, this was why I don't I adopted this. Is like the, the maximum that can that can happen is that you lose the day that somebody steals the data in that particular job but they can never uh, just you know have access or use the entire uh, memory because that's another thing you know uh, i worked as a translator myself for a long time and of course translators use those memories for other projects too and then um, it can very easily happen that some things appear in other documents it's just if you do it that way it's just a very dirty that's how it is
1: understood So now, uh, let's talk about tools that, that we can use. For example, encryption, using encryption to uh, protect files uh, between that that are moved from a language translation company to a translator or to their client, for that matter, uh, and vice versa. Is that something that needs to become widespread if file, file based translation is going to be uh, the norm or trend going forward? Is something like PGP encryption of files good enough or our industry needs a lot more than that what do you think
2: well my sorry just quickly um we have the thing is the, the translator can't work on an encrypted file right so what we do is like we have our clients upload the files over the encrypted connections 215 six-bit ssl which is pretty, pretty much you know it's like it's right it's actually quite right bullet but uh when they when clients encrypt files, the, the files themselves it's like they're basically doing that for themselves because once we have the files on our systems, they get they are encrypted anyway on the server. But at some point, we have to unencrypt them for the translators to do work on them. You know because they you know they, the translators ask actually to, to be able to read the text right. So. Um,
1: well, I, I was just, I, w- I was alluding to the fact uh, of uh, encrypting files within the transport mechanism. So, let's say if uh, you were sending a file to me, you would be encrypting it, but then I would have the, the decryption key. And then I could open the file, do my work if it needs to be translated, and then encrypt it and send it back to you. That way, in the middle, at least there is some safety.
2: How we do it is actually you get a login and then you log in to our server. Okay. And you down, you download from there and you upload to there. And uh, we don't actually have any translators anymore that are allowed to not use our internal systems to do their work. So uh only in very few exceptions, we allow people to work on Excel files, for instance. Um, In 99.9% of the times, they are obliged to work in our system, and basically the, the the cat editor is, you know, is basically an encrypted API to our systems. So the, the data never, the, the original files, you know, you upload the files to the system, they stay on there, and then you, you know, we generate the translated file and you download that from your end. And um, our me- measure of security is basically, uh, uh, a login process.
1: That's similar to what we have in, in our company where I work. Yeah. Um, we we are trying to move, we've moved away altogether from file-based translation where things were handled offline. And But yeah. you can't avoid it in some instances, for example, the translator uh, needs to do something offline because they are inherently in a country where internet is not reliable, electricity is not reliable, and you have to make exceptions. But for those exceptions, we go beyond that and we... Apply PGP type uh, encryption on the file, send it over. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the idea is that in the middle, at least it's protected. But then this safety and security of the uh, translator's computer is beyond our, um, our control. Yeah. And and that's yeah. uh, something yeah. that we try to mitigate with, with understanding and, and educating the translator. Um, so let's, let's talk about moving on a little bit. Uh, I would say that a big, number of uh or a big chunk of our uh, language translation community is either not aware of data security issues or they don't pay attention to it because it has not really caused a big problem for them or for anyone for that matter is it ignorance or lack of awareness
0: that's
1: a very interesting question so just just looking at
0: uh, at the industry i think it's it's mostly ignorance. Like um, we have some oh, people will. I'm, I'm I'm. You plan
1: to go
2: to gala.
0: <laughs> <laughs> No, but um, if you look, if you look, for instance, uh, on the ISO norms, right? Like uh, ISO seventeen one hundred. I mean, this is basically the gold standard for uh, the translation certification. And um, if you actually look through the headlines, like the main chapters, there, there is no chapter about data security. So the only thing where you kind of have data security included is like in the technolo- uh, technology that the translators or revisers or any stakeholders are supposed to use. that should be uh, secure and uh, yeah, ensure a certain uh, amount of, of safety. But apart from that, there is no real encryption on how, how this is uh, happening or how, how this should happen. Of course, there are some, uh, I don't know, companies who adopt the translation management systems themselves. And they, they really take care about their security, uh, let alone, for instance, um, financial institutions, right? Like if you have a financial institution and there's a lot of money involved, of course, you spend the extra few bucks to assess the uh, safe tools and, uh, to get the right tool that is, that cannot be penetrated in order to save millions in lawsuits or something. So the, the, the question here is really, but for, for the LSP or, or LSC uh, landscape, I really don't think that, this level of awareness is really uh, there on the big scale, unfortunately, or yeah, yeah like this, yeah. this ignorance. I, I,
2: you I, I, it. I thought it would be an argument, but, but you know, that's another, that's another, that's another problem, Really, It's like, you know, I really I mean, yeah. have to say that in the last couple of years, um, I, I thought that offering a high level of security would be a USD, which, uh, not really, I mean, it's like you know, if you discuss price a thousand times, then you might discuss the data security maybe once. So I don't, I don't know. It's like this is Europe, or this is, I guess, Germany. So I don't know. Uh, would be interesting to hear how how it how it works in the North America. I can't speak for that.
1: Well, uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting point, but uh, it's not much different, except when you're dealing with a government contract where uh, data security is um, somehow uh, stipulated in the agreements that, you know, if you're dealing with sensitive material classified as a secret level or protected, then uh, you will need to work on a computer that has a password and that computer is kept in a room with a lock and key. So, yeah,
2: which is basically every computer, you know, know, every, I mean, What office doesn't have computers with a password and, and, and locks on the, on the door? I mean, like, this is, I mean, if that's the security standard in times of the internet, then, you know, that's, that's no, no good. And mostly, I mean, this is the same here, you know, when you work for, um, you know, for public sector, mostly they just want to see your ISO stamp or something, but you know, it doesn't mean anything, does it?
1: Well, that's the thing. I don't see much awareness about this in the industry. I mean, even if I'm looking at uh, industry events like Localization World or Gala, there's a lot more focus on things that haven't really changed much, such as translation quality, sales practices, and other things, which which are great. We need those in our industry. We need a lot of talk about those. But this is a very critical topic, and especially today with technology being so advanced, and data breaches being, you know, a norm in, in, in a, every industry, basically. Even clients at the buying end are not concerned about this. It takes only one incident for this whole thing to blow up and hopefully it doesn't happen. But in order to be proactive, that's why we are having this conversation right now. Why is that? How can we change that?
2: Mike, can you, can you, 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 Mike showed me an example today actually from uh, an, an article. Was it, was, was
0: it translation.com or something? Yes. I mean, that, that, might be a nice and little analogy. Yeah, like basically what happened three years ago uh, was that um, you could use uh, the MT of translation.com and uh, Google Google the the source text and they will appear. Uh, they would appear in Google. This is also a different also a different topic that we haven't touched so far. Actually, that yeah, that that also third-party systems that we're using are also like storing the data and um, some some people who might still use Google Translate for certain language pairs. I mean, uh, the data will also be processed outside of Europe if we still uh, stick to the GDPR topic. But um yeah, apart from that, I mean, there has been a huge blow in the industry already, especially with this um, MT breach. I mean, nothing really happened, right? Like, I think I mean, it has to be like a, a paradigm change also. Um, make it a topic like on the on a huge industry conference is like on a constant basis. It maybe even have uh, some providers take... Uh, actions and uh, develop some some solutions for some of the projects that uh, are supposed to be solved by a certain legal requirements, right?
2: Why, why I said that was that, uh, for instance, at the last gala conference, I, the vast majority of, of sessions and topics was about AI, uh, you know, like machine learning. So, so we, we, you know, we spent so much time discussing how to send the data out, third-party systems to to so, sort, you know, to in one way or another, you know, lighten, lighten our load. And, you know, um, but I can't recall a moment when we actually discussed what it means to send all our data out. You know, it's like, uh, it's, it's great that we put that we discuss possibilities. Absolutely. I'm all for that. I'm, I'm am a possibility nerd. It's great. Uh, at the same time, we do need to talk about uh, implications. You know, and we, and if we have, you know, if we, our only concern is sending the data out over, uh, over fiber to whatever country and to whatever server, um, then at the same time, we need to think about what it means for, for our clients data, you know, and, uh, of course, we do not want our, our data to be, served, you know, our clients data to be searchable in Google after. I can, I guess we can all agree on
1: that, right? Absolutely. So I'm glad you brought up that example. I read about that uh, a while back. Uh, that's one of the cases where things can go wrong. Uh, I mean, I can think of so many different scenarios. For example, uh, you know, uh, the MT being one of them, TM itself being another one. Uh, I've heard that some uh, freelancers share TMs with other freelancers. Obviously, that's in their agreements that's that's another uh, you know uh, exposure that shouldn't happen and then there is man in the middle type attacks where um someone could be sniffing the data we talked about this uh, there are ways to mitigate that and then we've got state actors who are really interested in data for specific companies in Europe or North America and we've noticed recently that there's been a lot of uh, conflicts happening as a result of that and and our industry plays a role in that because we don't handle anything other than data so uh, give me some other uh, scenarios of where things can go wrong where people haven't thought of uh, risks and vulnerabilities
2: to be honest if I was a secret service uh, and I'm sure I'm sure the secret you know now there's a couple of secret service guys who are chuckling away because you know it's like we've thought of that like 30 years ago you know We'd be to do it. Seriously, if I, if I would want to, uh, to get internal information from, uh, large companies that do business worldwide, I wouldn't attack, try to attack their internal systems. I would just attack their LSP. I mean, <laughs> it's everything, contracts, everything important, new technical documents, everything. There's so much stuff, everything they really care about gets translated. And, um, and we store it in a fashion that, that you make you make it even searchable in different languages, and you use it. I mean, it's like for for uh, for the Secret Service or something. It must be great to be able to use keyword search so so effectively. So yeah, I guess I guess it's you know rather than speaking about particular things, um, I think we have to we have to really reassess um, certain technologies that we're working. Uh, I think we should move away uh, from file-based, especially unencrypted file-based exchange. I think we should move away from a client-server approach. Um, um, client-server approach. I mean, like with tra- you know traditionally, like oh, this is our translation server, and and all client machines with their locally installed software uh, uh, connect to it. Um, I've been saying that for ten years. Um, I, I think it's inherently unsafe, and we have to reassess that. And uh, the industry should move on to more uh, advanced technologies, especially because we're only dealing with text and not with video production, where we you, you know deal with gigabytes of data. We we're, we're still talking kilobytes in our industry. So um, I have very little understanding why we why we're still working with with inherently unsafe systems. So. There's basically, you know, we have to think about like, well, how can we keep the data central? How can we protect this central location? How can people connect in secure ways to these central locations? And how can we, uh, make use of late third party technology whilst at the same time, um, at least keep the data in, 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 in an environment that, that we at least understand? Um, you know, so. There are many MT providers uh, that do offer like sort of special contracts or like private service or even companies like Microsoft offer your personal MT engines, you know? And I think if we only start not sharing the MT data with every basically training a global MT model with our data and basically making the data available to everyone at that point. I think there are a lot of high impact things that we can do that don't require creating new technologies. It, it only requires a change in, 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 in mental approach and uh, using what's available right now. And uh, even, and this is a call out to the large you know, TMS providers that still work with that old technology. I think you, you guys need to uh, seriously sit down and, uh, yeah, think if, if, if this approach is still
1: valid in 10 years. Uh, I agree with you 100%. uh, But let me actually uh, mention something that is a little bit outside of uh, uh, the standard scope of security when it comes to language translation companies. So things such as ransomware attacks have become commonplace today. Uh, I don't know if it has happened to any language company, but most LSEs don't have an IT security team in place to mitigate something like that an attack that could expose sensitive data while that's very commonly happening uh, we hear about that in the news every day is that something that an lsp is at at the risk of i mean again we are dealing with very sensitive information
2: as long as you use a software service based translation management system you're basically under almost no risk because you know they're basically just accessing a website but you you know no ransomware would be capable of of bulk download downloading um a large database of translation you know this only applies if you if you run everything on your local machine and uh, i just you know in the, in, the, in the question before i said why i believe this is an inherently insecure approach every time you run a Software on your local machines, with files on your local drive, with uh, you know a database running on your local machine, then then that data is as secure as your local machine. And I do believe that, for instance, AWS, you know Amazon AWS or, or Google uh, the Google App Engine or or Microsoft Azure, that these guys do a better job at protecting that data than than I possibly could, even with an IT team.
1: Absolutely. So uh, again, there is a way to change people's mindset and and that's not happening in our industry. Cloud computing is still getting a bad rep. As you said, in in Europe, people have uh, certain sensitivities. In North America, it's still considered someone else's computer and, and, and changing that is not easy. So if that's not happening quickly enough, uh, and people, as you said, are storing data on 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 premise, uh on their on in their own premises. Then there are issues with keeping that data because most of them are not going far enough to protect that data. For example, most uh, source files, translated files, MTs, all of those are in plain text. Backups yeah. are in plain text, basically, uh, and nothing is encrypted. How many LSCs actually? Uh, go to that degree to make sure that even if the data that they're storing is protected and and if it leaves their hands uh, without their uh, consent that the other person will not be able to uh, take advantage of data
2: how would you do that even on an, an even hard drive okay you know some people you know I just had, I had this conversation the other day it's like Somebody said to me, "Yeah, I'm my hard drive." Like, oh, that's great. That's great. If you lose your laptop, you know, if you have a ransomware attack on your computer, that doesn't matter because your file is is for your operating system. It's unencrypted. You know, there's yeah. The thing is, I wouldn't even know how to do that because yeah, I don't know. Everybody is. We have to be online for our job, right? We have to be online. We need to. Have all sorts of resources and we have to have access to them. So you have a lot of people that need a lot of access to the internet and can, can be, you know, and um, yeah, that it just creates a security threat. And, you know, you can have the best IT team if, if uh, someone in your company opens a stupid email and it happens to be a very clever, clever worm or something, then, well, tough. Mike, what's your take? Sorry. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. no, no, it's, it's exactly the same. Like, um I mean, you can if, even you you personally, like, when when you're working from home, especially as a freelancer, handling data of uh, different LSCs, basically sending you you stuff. I mean, you can only do as much, especially as a freelancer, right? Like, as a freelancer, you don't have an IT team. You're your accountant. You're bookkeeping. Uh, you do your bookkeeping. You're you're your IT specialist. You're the translator doing the operations and. And the end of the year, you also have to deal with all the authorities, right? So, of course, you can always put some measures into place, but at a certain level, you just at your capacity and you can't do any more that would be reasonable, right? So, it's inherently like a very difficult question on how to handle this. And um, yeah, I'm really struggling also um, because at least how it is in Germany is that also many translators are, yeah, they, yeah, the they're they're not detecting the, the most technical people in the industry. So, yeah, I really see a big problem and I think the only solution is like to to go away from storing all the different files and uh, assets on your on your own computer and pushing it somewhere that can keep you safe. And this is also what, what Andre mentioned beforehand is that Azure or um, like Microsoft and all the other providers, they can uh, they can ensure a certain degree of uh, security. That you just can't do on your own when you're um, working on your computer. Do what you do best. Outsource them.
2: Yeah. Um, get yourself as one of the good software service based translation management tools or make sure that companies that you work for or, or, you know, as a company, you know, your LSD, just make sure they're using such a system and then, and then you already know that, you know, it's like, of course, there's always a security risk. Of course, you know, no system is 100% secure. But at least, you know, you're miles ahead of what you've been doing in the past. Absolutely. So concentrate on what you do best and just buy into uh, an extensive security, you know, into an in, existing security infrastructure. This is this is the, advi- the only advice that I can
1: think of. Uh, So on on that note, uh, Andre, let me ask you this. Now, when a client trusts you with data, uh, I'm no no lawyer here, so I'm just guessing, they probably have an agreement with you or they assume that you're protecting their data. Now, if you're going to uh, move that data, if if you've moved it to a third party, such as a cloud provider, whether it's uh, one of the major ones or you're dealing with a cloud-based um, a translation infrastructure like a TMS or um, even a project management system that's cloud-based. Mm-hmm. Now, have you delegated your responsibility of protecting the data to your third parties who are uh, the, or, or the? Yeah, we
2: yeah, we have a service level agreement with all of them, and um, and uh, data protection is part of the service level agreement. They in turn have a service level agreement with um, the actual data center providers, with mostly. You know, now, now it's, uh, we have to make a distinction between the, uh, a data center provider where you like buy rack rec space or, you know, where you actually buy virtual machines and stay, you know, in storage and, and databases. Um, and, you know, these providers in turn then have, uh, in our case, it's Microsoft Azure. All our data is in uh, Microsoft Azure data center in Amsterdam. And they in turn have an SLA with them. And uh, if you want to be our clients, we have to insist that we agree that um, we feel that the data uh, is, is secure in Amsterdam uh, in the Microsoft premise. If 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 you don't feel that way, then um, we we can't we can't really help because yeah, my how many infrastructures do you keep in place uh, for people? And uh, we try to reason with people. We try to explain, but we had a few cases where. Uh, people say it's like, no, in that in that, uh, in
1: that case, we can't work together. But th- that's, I guess, the price of
2: doing business.
1: You know, yeah. you, you have to stay true to yourself
2: and say, okay, then you, you go someplace else and I hope for you that your data is more secure there.
1: Understood. So oh, to continue on that question, to continue that subject, so as an, a language service provider, you have contracted third parties to do the work, which could potentially be uh, freelancers, which is normally the case, uh, because some people have internal translators, some people have outside and their work habits or practices and uh, what they can do is beyond the LSE's control, basically. So some probably believe that it is not their problem if a freelancer has an issue with your computer. Although you, you are hosting your data at a third party, you've done your part to secure it. Now the freelancer is trying to do the work. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, their computer is. Is hacked or something has happened to it? It's compromised. How do you manage that part? Like it's it's, it's still outside your control, but you're now uh, in charge of protecting your client's data. But your third party has somehow uh, neglected to, to to do their job. Who is on the hook for this?
2: Well, um, my, uh, yeah. Um, well, our translators. Do they, they? You know, we're not at risk from our translators because our translators, um, they, we have, a, we run a, a, a translation management system with, uh, with, uh, with a, uh, with a combined CAT tool. So uh, everything, all the work is done centrally, and they do do it in their browser or an encrypted connection. So if their computer is compromised. Okay, you could argue that somebody, so if you had a, had a a keystroke sniffer or something, of course, you could, like, you know, uh, sniff the passwords and stuff like that. But, you know, of course, again, that's outside uh, of our control. Um, when it comes to, um, you know, our TMS provider and, and, and Microsoft Azure, then you're basically in their hands. You have to be honest. You're basically in their hands. But... Um, I just personally believe that their hands have a higher potential of protecting the data, actually protecting the data than my own hands or even my own IT team. Because, you know, think about your yeah, Microsoft Azure, all that's, that's, that's best, Office 365, right? SharePoint, all that stuff is in that data center. Just imagine they had a massive security breach. Um, that would it cost them so much money and so much trust that I believe they, they, they invest, uh, large sums of money and effort into keeping that data safe way more than I ever could. Uh, so yeah, it's also trust on my part, of course. Uh,
1: as, as a, as a technical geek, I'm really, really enjoying this conversation. So let me ask you something that you touched upon uh, earlier. You said that. Uh, and you mentioned MT a couple of times. It requires massive data pools to establish uh, quality output regardless of what the MT is supposed to do. I mean, the, uh, the machine learning engine is supposed to do. So for language, yeah. it needs tons and tons of data, tons and tons of uh, uh, segments, basically. That encourages sharing data. I mean, a lot of LSEs uh, want to go with the flavor of the day and they want to have machine translation and they probably can't help it but to develop those engines, and which could possibly be very sensitive, that data is very sensitive. Now, as a client, as a person or as a company that's actually very uh, worried about sensitivity or or protection of the data, how do you mitigate the risk of your data ending up in such a data set, which could eventually power um, MT for tons and tons of companies? Now, as you mentioned earlier, your data could be living there for, for eternity.
0: It will be living there for eternity. <laughs> Mike, I guess you can answer this question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In terms of MT, I mean, there's always, it's always a little bit difficult because I think also you you touched this with Istvan in, in your last uh, podcast. Uh, in your last podcast, for LSEs, it mostly doesn't really uh, make sense to have uh, an MT that, that comprises of a data set of different clients so you have like a, a big client let's say that uh, sends you a certain certain type of text like certain legal contract or something so a very narrow domain so that uh, an automated MT really makes sense for uh, for yourself but of course um, if we're thinking about corporate uh, structures so um, corporations who um, would like to have their own uh, trained machine uh, machine translation then of course um we're also getting to to the problem like away from the LSC scope, where, of course, it's, it's exactly the same thing as Andre said, like the, the, the trust that they basically need um, to their provider, um, that the, uh, the data is not misused in any way. And, uh, I mean, the only thing you can really do as, as a company, you can, you can stay safe with the contract. You, know, you, do, you make contracts and you have to believe that the provider that uh, you're using is basically sticking to that treaties and doesn't use the data for anything else. Like there, there is no real uh, traceability, right? Like what happens to your data? Of course, you can access your uh, your MT provider engine and see, like, uh, okay, what kind of segments are stored there. But what you don't know is like where else it might be stored or where it has been sent to. So uh, in, in in that sense, uh, the only thing that we really can do is trust.
2: right? <laughs> You're also training the machine mind. That means that the machine might think that uh, a certain question is uh, is to be answered a certain way that you fed it. So uh, you're basically teaching the machine what to say so that it says what's in your client's document, pretty
1: much. That makes sense. I mean, there's only so much you can do. And, and uh, as a responsible LSE, obviously, you are supposed to keep your client's uh, data in silo and, and protect it uh, just like you would protect your own data, just like you'd protect your um, uh, passport, basically, because you don't mm-hmm. want to get for it to get in the wrong hands. Um, I
0: mean, I mean, also, like, just recently, we also discussed this today with the fall of the EU-US privacy shield. Actually, like, right now, we're kind of in a legal limbo, right? Um, yeah. We, 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 we are not supposed to use any American products anymore, third-party <laughs> systems. So, um, we would have to use the European ones, like, if uh, for MT like uh, I, I guess the only real MT engine or MT system that we could use right now is uh, DeepL because it's European and not not talking about all the other third party systems that have been developed in uh, in, in the US or uh, yeah yes deepl my deepl
2: uses uh, your data to train the uh, train
0: engine exactly and then we have the same problem but they're doing it in Europe so it's okay i guess hi right, uh, right. <laughs> so um, so we're we're basically right now, especially now, that's a great coincidence that we have this talk today, but actually, like, we're not supposed to do anything with American products from yesterday on, right?
1: Well, that's only going to deepen the, the divide between um, companies when it comes to data protection, technology adoption, and even uh, yeah. best practices to, uh, to, to yes. get things done properly.
2: I said that. Right at the beginning, it's like it's like we're not only really fighting against uh, conservatism, not like in a political sense, but you know, in, in uh, adopting of technology sense, but also against a lot of bad press that is very often very ill-informed, very uninformed, very uh, superficial, and it just like you know, it's like it's like telling my mom about evil internet, and she's gonna go like, oh, I'm not gonna use that evil internet because I don't know what what the hell. Of evil things is going to do to me, you know, and, and, and like, yeah, we're fighting against a lot of shallow discussions in the press as well. And uh, I don't know if if that's a fight that is easily winnable.
1: I don't think so. I mean, there, there are lots of political reasons why these things happen. And that's beyond the scope of our today's conversation. But as uh, as people who um, as people who handle uh, people's data, I guess, uh, let, let's focus beyond that. Let's, let's uh, keep our conversations to how we can uh, improve things at our level. So let me ask you something in the context of uh, the most popular uh, topic of the day, which is COVID-19. Uh, mm-hmm. After the lockdowns happened, the medical industry uh, became heavily reliant on telemedicine. And uh, doctors started communicating with your patients using email but those messages are going through a centralized encrypted server, where you know the data stays in some sort of an online vault, and patients have to log in to read them. Uh, afterwards, they're no after they're notified that a new message has been uh, uh, that has arrived in their mailbox. Is that something that we could implement in the translation industry? Uh, and and how hard would that be? Because it looks like the medical industry was very quick to adopt something like that.
0: So uh, basically, basically what what you can still do in that sense is that uh, you also have your own sharing systems right I mean uh, not everyone has to rely on on those systems like like or I don't know like different file sharing systems that are public if we're talking about SAS solutions that we're using or basically that are stored in in a safe data environment we can also have like different file sharing systems if we are not opting for and uh, and yeah, an, an SAS solution for the translation management system. So, um, in that sense, like such secure upload and download, um, yeah, how we want to call it, uh, upload and do- download services, um, they're, they're still in place. They just need to be adopted for our industry, really. I mean, I mean,
2: any, any cheap CRM nowadays has like, uh,
0: uh, exactly, encrypted yeah. file
2: sharing, you know, um, uh, Uh, For instance, what was nice in COVID-19 is like, you know, I I talked to other colleagues, you know, that work, you know, differently and in the the translation industry, and they had to scramble around in licenses and da-da-da, and they had, you know, how do we do things and da-da, and we basically didn't have to change anything, nothing, because for us, it never meant, it doesn't make a difference where I access our website and type in my login data. You know, I can be in any country. I can be at home. I can be in the office. It's really, and the office is pretty much just a place where we meet and hang out. Uh, so I guess you know, COVID nineteen and that you know has just shown a lot of industries that um, that they you know there's an urgent need to adopt uh, new tech you know different technologies to make uh, to make it for many people less necessary to be at a certain spot. Uh, to do their work and um, has has given it a, a large portion. I, I I as a business owner, I even fear that a lot of people in the, in the future will basically expect to be able to work from uh, from from anywhere. Um, but the good thing is that the it's not that we had to develop the technology when COVID nineteen happened. It's all we have that, and it's like uh, if you something free, like, I don't know, OneDrive or your Google Drive. If you use that as even if very a very small um, shop, if you use your Google Drive and share a file in Google Drive, that's a million times more secure than sending it via email, just for the people who didn't
1: know. Uh, absolutely. No, I agree with you. Um, so yeah. related to that, uh, let me just uh, ask you a follow-up question. Related to that, a lot of companies share files, uh, even with my company or with with their suppliers, um, because we collaborate with many large and small language translation companies. So they, uh-huh. they free they use freely available file sharing services. I'm not going to name any of them. You know some of them. Yeah, yeah, i Uh that. So I understand. At my the,
2: average, we transfer. Yeah, there there's
1: there are numerous yeah. ones. I understand the connection between the client machine and the web server is encrypted, which. Provide some some level of confidence.
2: You you have to send a link?
1: Exactly. Know,
2: used to that. You know,
1: but but the funny. files sit on a third party server with no obligation yes. to protect it. How bad is yes, that yes. vulnerability?
2: And you say, and then you're basically sending the file location as a link in an unencrypted email. Right. Right. So
1: and the password to, to
2: that. It doesn't come with a password. You only the link. Yeah. That
1: boggles my, That's mind boggling because yes, there's I just illusion of security this, i guess this,
2: i just told you that this lady sent uh, the, the translation memory while we transfer because i you know i don't have to name give the name so maybe <laughs> she if she hears it she knows <laughs> sorry um
1: <laughs>
2: but you know because it was too big was larger than 20 megabytes she couldn't send it by enough so she used we transfer
1: so that actually uh, brings me to the next question and and uh, maybe mike can answer this one so Since you are dealing with clients a lot and in your business development role, you've done it in the past as well. Most of the time, a change, especially in our industry, gets enforced by the client community. Our industry has been slow when it comes to adopting technology or changing practices. It looks like the client community or the buyer community is not much worried about this, yet they're the ones at the highest risk. Why is that? Why are they not worried about it?
0: Um, I think th- that's what I also mentioned before, is that uh, they don't really don't think about translation so much. Like, you know, if you if you create a file, if you create a website, mostly like they, they don't pay any thought about like internationalizing it or translating it um, later down the uh, down the line. For them, it's just uh, the last step in the, in the process. And of course, there is uh, very little awareness um even in bigger companies on how uh, the translations are actually done like no one knows the processes and uh, no one knows like what kind of tools and, and workflows are in place so i think um the, uh, the the big thing here is really uh unawareness of um how how the whole industry is working and in that sense like they don't really have yeah they don't really have like put any pressure on their providers um and in that sense like you only have Really, like industries or countries where data security is a very big topic. Let for instance say Switzerland. Like in Switzerland, everything has to be very secure. Like Swiss servers, um, um, Swiss, Swiss providers, Swiss, Swiss, Swiss. You know, like they're they're really like focused on the data security that everything stays in the, uh, in the country. And um, also there are some industries, like I mentioned, the financial industry before, or the medical industry, that kind of have the mindset of uh, data security. But for uh, a lot of a lot of different industries and companies, I think it doesn't even pop into their mind that the data they have, yeah, is handled uh, by a local service provider, a language service provider, and then sent to uh, 12 people to to receive a quote. So it's just like this, aware, this kind of awareness is just not there. You
2: know, I can I can, I can give you there are basically that we're dealing with we're dealing with two types of clients. The one type doesn't care about it at all because it's, um, um, they have an IT department, there, but they have, you know, maybe management just, uh, chuckles at them, at them, you know, seeing them as, you know, I don't know, they, they used to be, they used to be bullied in school or something. And then you have people working for that company that don't know, you know, oh, I don't know computers so well, you know, and, uh, and they just can't have to get their work done. So they do it in any way possible. Um, that is, that is the majority. But then you also have companies that go full overboard, fully overboard and too, almost too much. We have one client where we're trying to, uh, uh, where why we keep trying to connect, uh, a, a, a web, you know, trying to translate a website and it, uh, the process of, of allowing the web, their web server to, uh, to talk to our server is still, is taking a good 10 months now and it's still not working because we still uh, don't have the necessary uh, firewall rules in place. So for fun, funny enough, you know, these are, these are two types of clients that we're dealing with. I couldn't give you one where I would say, you know, this is like a reasonable, that they run a reasonable level of
1: security. Okay, yeah, and uh, you're right, again, w- Earlier, I mentioned that it only takes one uh, incident for people to wake up. Let's discuss the implications of a breach. For those LSEs that don't know what it means to have their client data compromised, uh, Andre, please explain to me what should they expect? What would a disaster of that nature look like?
2: Well, since we are only, you know, so I just told you that they send um, send a translation memory while we translate. And it was large because it was larger than 20. It was like 45 megabytes. Um, you're a computer guy, so, uh, you understand how much text we talk. About. You know, four megabytes, 45 megabytes of raw text. So, and we sometimes have translation memories that are hundreds of megabytes or even gigabytes right,
1: large. Right.
2: So if we have, if we have a data with modern technology, it takes fractions of a second. To to pull enormous amounts of data from uh, from a server, and uh, you basically, if if you if you uh, hack into, if if you get your if you get a hold of a translation memory, a large translation memory, then you basically be getting the entire history of that company, going back years in the past, uh, contracts, products, development. You basically get everything. You're Getting the key to the castle, so um, so this is why I I said earlier why this this practice of sending translation entire translation memories and packages to translators is so mind boggling to me. Um, yeah, it's like for an LSP, they have to understand that you know, if they get hacked and somebody just gets hold of the translation memories alone, not you know, not even talking about the files, just the memories. Then, uh, this is, a, this is, a, then they're basically handing out the entire business information
0: of all that clients. Yeah. Also, also adding to that, um, if we talk about personal information, right? If you're not only working B2B, but also B2C, where you have a lot of client data, data that is really like, uh, personal data of, of, of those people, um, what kind of diseases they have, where they live, what kind of licenses and certificates they have, you know, this is all very sensitive information and uh, also the like just the con- like the punishments for that are also very high financially like uh, it can really cost your um your company a lot if let's say one of your translation memory gets lost and you have data of four uh, four or five hundred people in there right like everyone is entitled to their share of uh, recompensation for instance also not uh, not talking about also different uh contracts or uh, financial information again that might be very relevant um, for the development of the market. Like uh, basically, a language service provider with the right client can really do a lot of damage to to the overall market uh, and maybe the course of, of its shares if uh, they release information too early or too late. So this is this has like a lot of implication not only for your company, like legal implication, financial implication. Uh, implications, but also implications on your client that in the end will be the one who has to also suffer, maybe even also also legal consequences because they kind of had breached in their uh, in their confidentiality or non disclosure agreements. It's like you know, if you have a large
2: client, and you know, we all we in translation we know. You know, I I know very sensitive data about large clients, right? I know how much they pay for some raw material they buy from China I know that because it's I have I have that data and they entrust me with that data so if that data gets in the hands of their competitor that has massive implications you know this is this is data that other people want to have so it's not only that your your data can be breached accidentally your data can be breached on purpose absolutely you know? If I work, if I work for, I don't know, like company B and there's company A and I know, they're using this company for their translations, then it's absolutely thinkable that they're, that they're, um, giving the task to one, to, to, I don't know, to some IT guy, some hacker or whatever, to, um, to purposely, you know, attack that, their, their systems. Right. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, Often it's super easy. I I have I have LSPs that I work with that we download files from their FTP, and with that FTP data, I know their public IP address, and right. they have a fixed IP address, so I could give that IP address to some hacker and say do something
1: with it, right? Absolutely, if you have nefarious reasons for it.
2: Yeah, I I, w- I wouldn't do that. I'm just saying, you know, right. but you know, we we we're still adult enough to be able to to
1: play what if No, no I understand say, uh, what you're telling yeah. me is that there's not enough protection or mitigation happening uh, from simple things like if you're sharing data with your third party, whether it's a freelancer or a translation company uh, yeah. while there needs to be trust at some point you also need to be you know, as they say, trust but verify have you checked yeah. that this person is actually 100% or this company is vested and in, in, in your interest are they basically working for you uh, because they could be pretending, they could be, um, you know, some sort of a, um, a hacker out there and pretending to be a freelancer. Up. And uh, now all of a sudden, they have access to your FTP server. And from there, they could get so many other things.
2: Think of all the translation scammers.
1: Oh, yeah, that's another story.
2: Yeah, that's another story. I'm sure they, you know, if I was in that little scamming office or one of those little scamming office, office God knows where in the world. Have you, have you any
1: idea how many packages and with translation memories they get sent so let's briefly actually touch upon that uh, this has become kind of a, a normal thing now because a lot of uh, we receive those emails i'm sure you do too and it's uh-huh. become easy to kind of decipher that this is not a legitimate uh, freelancer although it still sometimes can be tricky how does that work and and how can we be careful not to fall into that trap?
0: My dear Percy, you deal will deal with that mostly Yeah, I mean sometimes it's really obvious, right? Like, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> just like you read the English, and then you know that uh, the person you don't want to have as an English translator. translator. Me, great yeah.
2: translator. Yeah. right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so, um, of course, a little bit common sense always is always involved. Apart from that. Um, of course, like in, in terms of verification, um, we are, we are always trying to, um, to have like a separate validation step, which is basically test translations. So whenever we get, um, small, uh, small projects that, um, we know will be publicly available and they're, they, they, don't have a high confidentiality rating. So let's say you have a press release about, I don't know, press release about something that happened last weekend. The water you know.
2: prices. Yeah. That's you know. changed last week.
0: So it's already known. So, so it's already known. It's public knowledge. So we, what we are basically doing is we, we send like, uh, four or five of those little uh, translation requests that will like, if if something happens to that, it, it won't hurt anyone. And then we will have a verification process, um, with our proofreaders, like how the translation quality is and all of that. And then, of course, we decide, um, if we want to continue, um, working with, with that specific, uh, client and this has mostly proven very very well because um we also want to use um yeah just tasks that that are actual projects and pay the chance to trans- the translators for the test um instead of just giving them like a thousand words that they need to translate and then they don't get paid for it or something um i mean the test translations is a lot uh something that i really don't like if it's not paid for the translators so um we are we are we're trying to um we're trying to to verify um it through the quality and also like of course we will build a, a relationship over time like a trusting relationship over time and if i have a translator that i've been working with for the last 3 years and uh, i never had any reason to believe that he or she is a is a scammer then um of course i would give more sensible projects to that relevant supplier and not to someone who just applied last week
2: what well, also works quite nicely is like uh forcing them to work with your cat tool because these guys are into quick bucks and not into learning new systems. So you know that really that really gets them um where they go like, nah, can we do it other, you know, then they don't want to do it and then that's a good indicator um if someone is willing to invest, you know, a, you know, a little bit of time into something or not.
1: Um, there there yeah. are so many areas that uh, add to the attack surface of an LSP if they're not oh, capable. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about tools. Uh, um, tell me if you know of tools that are readily available. We talked about some of them, like the cloud systems and so forth, that offer protection and better data security or at least uh, prevents leakage of data that an LSE could readily use um, out of the box. Like uh, what, kind of, uh, what kind
2: of, what kind of, what? um the the technology landscape is so large what, what are we exactly talking
1: about so the standard tools that an LSC uses for example we use tools for getting our work done um for translation so we have tmss we have cat tools we have project management yeah. tools and then we also have things for communication you know um for example microsoft office online is, is the de facto tool for for using inside the company so in your opinion do you know of any tools that you could recommend for people to start using now that has that offers better protection for them?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's like the, the, what we're using is um,
1: we basically
2: have project management, uh, CRM in terms of what we need for invoicing, invoicing, CAT tools, all in one tool. Uh, it's all one of the same system, so uh, I don't even have to worry about data going from one place to the other. Um we have other other systems in place but but then they the data exchange between the uh, encrypted API cause Do do you want to give me a do I am I allowed to give a name or, or
1: It's is? up to you, but you could just talk in categories. for example, uh, you talked about TMS, you talked about um, a project manager. it's it's entirely up to you if you want to talk about them or not, but yeah, I it's just, like
2: we we are we, yeah. have, we are an early adopter of Workbee. This is what we're working with for many, many years. And uh, the good thing is that we basically have everything in one system. I have uh, my you know the, my client client area, I have we have the cat tool in there, we have uh, all the project management in there. We keep the client data in there, we have the invoicing in there. So the good thing about that is like we at least have one area where everything is basically in one box and you actually have to get into the DMC of that box in order to uh, to do anything and the other great thing is like if you have a single system is that your access right management for different users because that's another thing you have to think about uh, is central so you can basically decide what Kind of user is seeing what, and this then these rules then apply across the board, rather than in a single system. And you always have to make sure that you know you have basically puzzled the access right together correctly. And then you have things like single sign-on, you know, which is then in turn uh, connected to your domain. Um, oh, this is getting very technical. I'm sorry, um, but you know um, where you basically so that you basically create the ability of control also. Controlling access rights and, and, and your data from a central point. The more systems you use, the, the, the harder you make it for yourself uh, to keep track.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for that information. Now, let me ask you about today's technology that translators use. How should it evolve to allow secure working by translators? You mentioned that in your case, you have translators uh, work on a centralized TMS. Uh, mm-hmm. Data does not live in their computer. Data gets shown to them and they provide their output and save it into your centralized TMS. What are some other practices uh, or technologies that can improve over time to offer better uh, data security?
2: Well, you know, the, the main thing is that, you know, we have end-to-end encryption, which we already have. Oh, oh, I can think of one. Oh, I can think of one. And I, I, I met these guys uh Two years ago in Washington on an, on an exhibition in Washington. Um, it's an Israeli company and it's, it's really cool. They, they offer a service. I can't remember the name, but it's, it was a, you can, I guess you can Google, you can Google that. Or, but what I really like, they offer throwaway virtual machines, uh, where basically the trans, oh, so, so you could set up a workflow where the translator basically Access is a throwaway uh, virtual machine. That virtual, virtual machine is closed, so they can't send off emails or anything from that. And you can have them access maybe local software, but um, ideally just a, a web browser on that throwaway virtual machine. Uh, and what I like about the idea is that you basically just have people work through a window onto a computer, then that shows you a web browser and you can basically, even if you attack that system, you know, it's a throwaway virtual machine and, you know, in the next that is gone. So if in a very high secure environment, that's what I would do. Can you still make screenshots and do OCR? Of course. I mean, there's always a limit to, uh, to what we can do. But, you know, that, that is one thing where I thought like, you know, where, where we could even like, uh, Even make our processes, uh, uh, more, even more secure. But apart from that, we're doing end-to-end encryption. We're doing 256-bit SSL. Um, all the, the database server, uh, communicates in an encrypted fashion with the, um, with the other elements of the software. I, apart from that, I wouldn't know how you could improve that process. If you work on a a classic environment, that's a
1: different story. Um, I think with with the advent of technology, that that will also change. So the more tools and possibilities uh, become available, then we can think of the applications and how can they improve. Um, So let's talk about best practices. Uh, Where does a translation company start to develop and implement a cybersecurity strategy? I mean, every translation company owner has a marketing strategy, a business development strategy, or um, even uh, strategies for, you know, five-year plans. They, they, they plan on, on how to expand their business or or NHR strategy. But cybersecurity is not top of mind for them. How can this get started? Well, they, it's like when you build a house. It's
2: like saying, you know, how do you implement um, network cabling to your house? Well, you have to think about it when you start building your house. You, you have to implement it straight from the bottom, really, and really go through all your processes and assess what you're doing. And, uh, then I guess, you know, this might be the biggest reason why uh, the implementation still shows so poor in, in many, in many respects. Because, um, I can imagine how painful it is if you basically have to tear down the house in order to install network cabling you know if that's the metaphor that is you know uh, not too cheesy to be used um yeah you really have to start from the beginning and i, I guess you know uh, uh think about you know think about adopting secure systems just pick one from the market um just pick one from the market and start from the from the bottom the minute that you basically move security outside of your premises, the current state of your IT system doesn't matter as much anymore. And then you can, you have time to revamp that. And, uh, I guess, you know, if you run a normal Windows domain and you make sure that, you know, you run your updates and uh, and you have uh, you run you know antiv- good antivirus software, I think um, you're not doing too bad, but you got to do that otherwise uh, if you continue the way that we just described earlier then yeah, you, you, you shouldn't be surprised if you have a massive data breach at some point be right. basically just basically just asking for one
0: right yes and I mean and I mean, The 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 problem is also like that, that most companies are just, or most companies, I don't want to generalize, but that some companies are uh, also just, you know, working in a day in day out, like they just uh, keep doing what they're doing, because it has been working for the last couple of years. And uh, as we already established, the clients don't really uh, demand a, a change in that regard, uh, but to just maybe like stop and rethink what you uh, what you're doing and how you're doing it, and put the whole cybersecurity issue um, in a holistic appro- approach. You know, as as Andre said, like tearing down down the house, it might be that you have to adopt new technology, that you have to change your processes, and of course, um, if you're working um, in in a, for for a language service provider or in a language service provider that, yeah, it just has all the the structures established and have, has been having them for the last 10 years. And suddenly you have to retrain like 50 people because like you have new software, new processes and everything. It's a painful process, but I think it's one that desperately needed uh, also in, in order to serve your clients better. Just a holistic approach that you need to follow here. It's not that everything is, um, you know, separated like a cybersecurity strategy will always be uh, in connection with your business strategy with the, with your tool strategy everything is, is, is connected in that sense and literally like every couple of years you will have to rethink what uh, what you're doing how you're doing it and then adapt basically
2: but well, mike I'm, i really think you have to make it as easy as google or apple or all the you know or you know or any other large companies you have to you have to create something you know this goes out to the software Manufacturers, you have to create something that toddlers can use. Right. That, but that that comes with security built in, and stop lying to people about your decade of old, old technology that you shut down people's throats as something as something that can even be retrofitted with security. And so you you know they they. You have all the time in the world and all the money in the world to just build something, just be modern and build something like Apple and Google do when they created a service that automatic, you know, you take a photo with your with your phone, and that gets uploaded to your Google Drive. And actually, if you look at the, the process that is happening in the background, it's a very, very secure process. But it's the 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 Taking a photo and then finding it in your Google Drive is something a toddler can do. It's so simple, but the security behind it is very sophisticated. And I would, think, this is what has to happen. This is what they have to do. And uh, then the industry will adapt. If uh, that doesn't happen and you make it, um, you know, you make it, you still make it rocket science to, to, Run a, a secure uh, business, then, you know, the, the industry,
1: that's my honest opinion, will stay the way it is. Let me, let me uh, ask you on, on, on that specific uh, topic uh, about shifting mindsets in our industry. Um, what I mean by that is that uh, the new generation that is now taking over the LSE community most of them grew up with the likes of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, where sharing is a common thing. And some of those people are now moving into uh, managerial roles. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, they're bringing fresh perspective. They're, they're looking at the world from a different angle. But they are also a little bit comfortable with the idea of sharing. Now, that opens up lots and lots of problems. I mean, compared to the previous generation where everyone was uh, worried about privacy and data security and so forth where do we start with changing people's mindsets to make sure that security is top of mind Uh, it starts with education in in my opinion Um, but but as a language translation company how do you reach out to your customers and and educate them and show them the value that you bring to them with the security that you offer to them
2: I think the young generation is way more capable of even understanding the risk itself. And, uh, you know, even a, a young person, they might share photos on Instagram or Facebook, but they, they pick what they share and, uh, and they don't share, um, you know, their, their, their account balance with everybody. So I think these guys are very well capable of making a distinction. And I mo- mostly find like the older generation to say, Nah, yeah, nah, nothing's gonna happen. You know, it's just like, um I, I think we have a lot bigger chance now uh to to have this shift in in um, sort of mentality mentality Mind-night. mindset. Yeah, I was fishing for a word here yeah. than than before. Um I don't think that you know, of course they there is you know super eager eager to adapt to machine learning. And of course, you know, and anybody who knows anything about machine learning thats that, that um, there's not to learn much to learn for the machine without data. You know, so we don't even have to talk about machine learning right. if the machine isn't fed any data. So, um, so I guess we have to live with the fact that we can, that we either have, you know, um, leave the benefits of machine learning and uh, agree to share some data. We have to find, I guess, they're just you know find ways to in, in contractual and then and then the third parties also have to deliver that security. Um that that we find ways to pick what we share, how we share it. Um for instance, right now we are working on um um we're working on anonymization. So for instance. Sharing sharing unfiltered uh, client data, you know, um, with a with a machine learning system is a massive problem. Um, if you can or could anonymize that data, meaning that names, numbers, everything, everything that has bears any any meaning, any real meaning, can be filtered out, uh, then then we can, I guess, find ways. Um, where we can train the machine or just maybe not filter it out, just like just scramble it, you know, replace 100 with the 500, replace Peter Miller with uh, Luke Schultz, you know, because for the machine, the outcome is the same. There's no difference. But the data then becomes basically meaningless. And I guess that that's the sort of strategy that we have to find um, because, you know, the machines need data to learn. Right. We have data. We can't use that data unfiltered for the machine to learn. But what we could do is basically render the data meaningless in a business or data, data protection sense, but keep the data as valuable for the machine as it was before, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. You understand what I
1: mean? Yeah, I, I do. So you were talking about redacting information from... Uh, the corpus before it goes to the the yeah. set. Now, how do ideally other...
2: ideally yeah. replacing uh, uh, with replacing it with information that has the same um, informational value to the machine,
1: but it may but not be no, real.
2: No, no, no any real world value.
1: Absolutely. How how the, how do other industries, in your opinion, handle um, data anonymization and redaction? Uh, I'm sure we are not the only ones struggling with this problem right now.
2: Ooh. You might you know an
1: answer? I don't think anybody does it. Good question.
2: Like,
0: I can't think... Like, I'm sure somebody from does.
1: Also I'm, from from I'm sure in my opinion, like, uh, the medical industry, for example, uh, oh, where yeah. they, they're dealing with privacy a lot, so they have to have come up with something.
2: Uh, the medical translations that we get still contain all the data.
1: No, no, I'm not talking about the medical translation. I'm talking about the medical industry. For example, they use data uh, from patients to um, create uh, large corpuses uh, for diagnosing all kinds of problems, right? So mm-hmm. how do they anonymize their data?
2: You know what? I, if I would have known that we talked about this before, I could have asked a friend of mine who is the head of a, 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 a company that makes hospital software. And you know what? I'm going to, uh, this is some of my homework. I'm going to ask.
1: Um, Well, that opens up uh, an opportunity for a nice webinar.
2: um, And at the same time, I think we all, at the end of the day, have to use the same technology. And basically, machine learning right now helps us anonymize data because, uh, uh, you know, I can, the thing is, I can find uh, social security numbers or or credit card numbers or IP addresses or MAC addresses with a simple, with a simple regex search. Right? right. But names, I can't. So machine learning is pretty much the only, or the only, is basically the savior here because that's the only technology that I can think of apart from a person that could tell if, if something is a name
1: or not. Well, when you're talking about gigabytes of text, you can yeah. only uh, look at anonymizing data algorithmically. I mean, there's no way for exactly. someone to sit down and go through that.
2: But how would you how would uh, discriminate between a name and no name uh, with with traditional al- alg- uh, algorithms?
1: No, with uh, traditional algorithms, of course, that's not possible. So you will need yeah. a machine to know people's names uh, and and yeah, and also
2: understand the the, the, the grammar. Basically, context, you know, yes. they use the uh, neural uh, natural language processing in order to understand what's the name in the sentence. And, uh, yeah, you're gonna have a hard time doing that with traditional uh, algorithms.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So what's let's, let's when, just... we,
0: when we look at some some sorry. Um, oh, go ahead. When we look at some some naming schemes, right? I mean, the name Paris can be the city, or it, it can be the name, right? And in that sense, it will be really difficult for the machine learning. Um, to distribute or to distinguish between, um, Paris as a name or Paris as a city, right? I mean, um, it, it, it's, it, it's, a name that, that occurs very often in, 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 different kind of certificates or data sets. And, um, basically there, there's a lot to, to be considered here. Um,
2: national, language processing can help you if the sentence goes,
0: I live in Paris. Exactly. Exactly. You know, <laughs> just, 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 just just to add to that.
1: Absolutely. I live with Paris, that's different. So, yeah, the uh, the, the uh, machine learning can actually look at the context and identify yeah. if that's a city name yeah. or a person's name. I, I understand that. It, the value is there. I definitely see that. And, and I think the applications will come our way very soon. Now, uh, let's shift gears here a little bit. I'm going to ask you about uh, the statistics. Uh, I don't think we have any statistics, statistics in our um, industry about cybersecurity issues, except some odd ones that pop up, like you mentioned earlier, one uh, where the, uh, you know, uh, Christ data was uh, leaked to uh, public uh, MT engines. Do we need a body to educate language companies and, and track these issues? I mean, this, this is a huge area.
2: We have bodies, don't we? Uh, we have lots of bodies we within have our industry. I don't think so. No, it's like, no, it's absolutely, no, but I, you know, we have to bring these topics into these organizations because yeah. I don't think we need another one. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, um, I don't know, let's do a, 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 a session at the a Gala a of world about this topic or or um, have an article in, uh, I don't know, things like Slater or Nimzi or whatever they all call, you know, we, we all know how they call, you know, there are many of them. Uh, and I guess this is, this should be the approach to actually make, you know, to make people start talking about it. I guess that's, that would be a nice start.
1: Right. And, and, and this is why we are having this conversation today to, to just, um, you know, raise awareness uh, and get people to talk about it. Now, uh, we talked about the ISO 17100 standard, which talks about uh, data, uh, I mean, translation quality. Uh, mm-hmm. Do we need a standard uh, in the localization industry for data security, data transport, the, or, or um, you know, maintaining data and so forth? After all, it affects very large organizations that are our clients. They have very deep interest in, in safeguarding their localization data while transported and kept. My yeah, sorry, I had to unmute myself. Um, so
0: I don't think that we, that we need a dedicated standard for it because, I mean, there, there are a lot of other data protection standards that we could just apply uh, in the same way. I think, um, that what we mentioned before is that, uh, different industry organizations really give some guidelines or maybe like appendixes, um, their own appendixes to this ISO, uh, norm in order to, to really educate the different uh, language service providers um about that about the topics maybe even like um establish some use cases that are usable for them and uh also in 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 terms of uh also uh companies that that consult different different entities in the industry um to just have a dedicated manager that is uh yeah, proficient in that that kind of topic and also knows um how to proceed for different uh use cases but because of course the security um the security is, is or the security requirements of each company can be very different um considering the or based on the client basis they're serving
2: that's actually a good idea you know there's like the the also the the consultancy firms you know they have someone who's an expert on audio visual translation they have someone who's an expert on uh to translation memory there's someone that is an expert on this and this and this and this and you read that and I have yet to find uh, uh, that they actually have an expert on cyber security
1: they don't unfortunately uh everyone have is you, doing s- I, haven't. I, I don't yeah, think it is my point yeah.
2: yeah
1: I don't think there's any research happening on cybersecurity within our industry either yeah so I was saying that uh I don't think that it's uh, an issue that the consulting and research firms are even looking at. Uh, because there's no research n- nothing done in the localization industry about uh cybersecurity.
2: And they wouldn't that's, that's another thing you know so i i doubt you know with the the i i am not sure that people would actually share any meaningful data. I can only like speak very generally and just say things that you know just can be spoken out because we all know they appear uh but basically you know you know in a, in a room full of Full of LSPs and, and translators and, and buyers who can say, like, ah, yeah, remember how we did it back in the day? You know, that kind of stuff. But, you know, hard facts, hard data, um, always, first of all, always includes client data. And second of all, if you don't do it right, well, you're basically throwing yourself under the bus.
1: Absolutely. So uh, you're right. It's a gray and shady area, and it, it would be hard to get solid data on this. Yeah. Um, but someone needs to do this because it's it's important. It, uh, we need to know about this information. Sure, true, but
2: um, how... Right.
1: I mean, at gunpoint? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, in closing, uh, I really had a fun time uh, with with you guys, and and this conversation is amazing. In closing, any thoughts you would like to share? Anything? Any advice you would like to offer to people who are listening? Um,
2: yeah, just maybe for the younger generation that goes to university right now, and still, you know still don't know the industry and, you know, find a ways. Just be open-minded when it... Just learn new software, learn new technologies, and new technologies often come with a better security than older ones. And just, um yeah, educate yourself. Try to educate yourself about these things as long as you're young because that's, that's painful. And, um yeah, I, I think, you know, it's a generational... Because I think this is a generational change. Right. You know, it's a, it's a generational thing. So what we can do now is ba- basically, um, help the younger generation to, um, in- in- adopt technologies very early that are inherently less unsecure or less unsecure, less super, inherently more secure, you know, by design. Because a lot of uh, problems that, got, a lot of security risks that we are facing today are down to the fact that we're still using um, technology or work, workflows that are that are um, that outdated. are unsecure insecure by design
1: absolutely and, uh, yeah okay so how do people find you and get in touch with you to discuss this subject or anything else that you are offering or your company offers?
0: You can always, of course, visit our website. It's wordcraft.international. Um, there you can find our contacts or, um, you can, uh, add Mike Mehlhose or Andre Hemka on LinkedIn and okay. uh, we will be happy to respond to uh, any questions and also have interesting discussions like this one. I mean, uh, we just met on LinkedIn last week and now we're doing yes. great. I mean, I mean, language people
2: are not mostly
0: actually really nice, nice people.
2: You know they can be quite, you know, can be hermits, but you know they're actually mostly quite approachable. And since this is such a global industry, and uh, you know, we most I suspect that most of us don't have any friends that uh, that you can talk to uh, about uh, localization matters without them, you know, like you know, moving away from you and drinking the beer alone. Uh, yeah, I just you know welcome everybody. You know, just uh, let's get in contact and like we have to nerd out online. So that's
1: how it is. Well, Andre Hemker and Mike Melos, thanks for speaking with me today. I really enjoyed and learned from you today. This conversation needs to continue. I hope we can have you over in the future to study the subject in depth and raise awareness in our industry as we did today. So once again, thank you so much for your time. And, and it was a pleasure speaking with you.
0: Yeah, thanks for the invitation very and your time as well.
1: And now it is our product review segment. I take this time to briefly review three products that have relevance to language translation companies. I am excited about the ones that I will be covering today. First, I would like to have a look at Cloudflare. Security starts at the network level. Cloudflare secures and ensures the reliability of your external facing resources such as websites, APIs, and applications. It scales with your network. You can get started with their free plan which provides distributed denial-of-service attack mitigation. Uh, It offers a global content delivery network, and you can get support through email. They have other paid plans available for people requiring more advanced features and support. As an organization that manages its own web assets, your business technology management may find Cloudflare to be a useful tool in keeping your operations online without worrying about cyber-attack-related downtime. Cloudflare itself has had some downtimes and issues in the past. I would give Cloudflare a 9 out of 10. Dropbox is an online storage service. This tool is relatively safe and secure for file transfer. The system encrypts upload and download links, and files can be shared with authorized users. Using their basic plan, you can get granular permissions to specify which files are allowed for use by which users, perform remote device wipe. send files that are as large as two gigabytes, lock files, apply watermarks to documents integrated with Office 365 and many other features. I think Dropbox is a great product and I would give it a 9 out of 10. The third product I'm going to review today is Norton 360. It is an innovative product that offers on-device security and antivirus, anti-spyware, malware and ransomware protection. It also includes a personal firewall for PC and Mac, 2GB of cloud backup and password manager. The basic plan starts at $35 US annually and other plans offer more features at a higher price. The only drawback is that certain Windows computers slow down as the scanning process is a bit cumbersome on the system. I would give this product a 7 out of 10 for its usability and effectiveness. Alright, there you have it. We covered data security in the localization space today. I hope you enjoyed it. Share your comments and feedback with us. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. Until next week.
0: Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.